Welcome, Welcome to the Lex Rex podcast, the last podcast you will ever need about legal news, 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 news. I, I thought we agreed that we weren't going to do that right now. Oh. I thought that's where we landed. Uh, well. Maybe not. Welcome to the Lex Rex Institute podcast. I'm your host, David Truschel, lead writer for the Lex Rex Institute. And I'm your co-host, Alexander Haberbush. I'm president of the Lex Rex Institute and a constitutional attorney, although I'm not speaking in that capacity today. Before we begin, please note that nothing in this podcast constitutes legal advice. That's and right. all of the opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals expressing them, mainly Also him, true. Not necessarily the opinions of the Lex Rex Institute. The Lex Rex Institute, for those of you unfamiliar, is a nonprofit constitutional advocacy organization. If you'd like to learn more about our organization's activities or make a donation, please visit our website, lexrex.org. That's L-E-X-R-E-X dot org. This is episode two of the podcast. Uh, no, for we're still you... doing intros. Oh, right, 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 right. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just, I'm overeager. This is episode two of the podcast. We thank those of you who listened to episode one and are joining us again. Last time around, we reviewed some of the current issues uh, for the Supreme Court. We also took a look at what I was calling the law sauna, reviewing some hot takes from the yeah, internet not, about legal issues. Not my preference as far as the name goes. I, I don't know what kind of responses we've had to that. but As far as I know, no one has evaluated it, but as agreed, <laughs> we're going to be trying... We're going to be trying out new names for that segment, so I'll have something else. I'm not going to tell you ahead of time what it is. We'll get your reaction in the moment. Okay, but fair enough. This week, we're going to be looking again at some Supreme Court issues. Some major get... issues with the Supreme Court this week. <laughs> you very, know, I, very I think true. we started this podcast at just the right time because I don't know that the Supreme Court has been this big in the news in recent history. That's probably true, although we did upload the first episode the day of, the day, the day after, after. <laughs> the big leak. Don't worry, we will be talking about that later on, so you can rest assured we will address that. I'm guessing those of you who did come back were probably hoping we would. We're going to make you wait hoping. for it, though. It's not the first item on our outline. That's right. Maybe those of you who listened to the first episode were hoping we were going to talk about it then. We recorded before the leak, so that part of it wasn't the best timing. But yeah, before we get better. into any of the serious stuff, there are a couple of things. And granted, both of these are only loosely related to legal issues in general. So, but b- before they were we get good. into the serious subjects, we're going to talk about Richard Nixon. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Richard Nixon, and then another blast from the past, slightly more recent past. Pokemon Go. I don't know how many of you remember that. It actually Every, did become an issue. Everyone's favorite piece of spyware, Pokemon Go. <laughs> it did become an issue very briefly during the 2016 presidential election. We can touch briefly on that as I well. I don't remember that. Well, we'll get to it. Okay. Um, but for the <laughs> I, most I, I part, know that not, not... actually, my my legal assistant, who's sitting right outside my office right now, he, he hated Pokemon Go when it came out. If anybody was you know, in his car, in his house, he said, you can't play that game. They're recording everything through that augmented reality camera, which, I mean, they might have been. I, we don't really know. But uh, most of us were not as careful about that. Are you, I'm not sure that most of us played that game, but... Everybody played that game for at least a few weeks. Mm. It, it literally cool. changed the culture in downtown Long Beach, where I work. People in Southern California don't walk. 
They That's drive true. pretty much everywhere. And Pokemon Go, for a few weeks at least, totally revamped that. I'd look out my window and all the sidewalks would be packed with people. that They're all on their phones trying to catch the Pokemons. That's definitely the right plural. <laughs> Is it Pokemon I? do I? remember, yes, as we alluded to, the first thing on the docket isn't Pokemon Go, it's Richard Nixon. I guess we're not going to probably spend a whole lot of time on this, but we both we both learned this this week that Richard Nixon... Richard Nixon famously recorded everything he did, right? Like yes. that was the whole subject of the Watergate scandal was the missing 17 minutes. And I guess after he left office, he kept recording himself for a little while because he just couldn't not hear the words that he said, I suppose. And it's a habit. Yeah, I guess through force of habit. And then at one mm -hmm. point... This David, you've looked into this. You're pretty sure this is real? As far as we can assume that the Washington Post is a credible organization. It, doesn't Bezos anything. own them now? <laughs> this predates him. Ah, okay. <laughs> I haven't seen anything challenging the veracity of this report, but neither of us have heard this tape directly. Neither of us have I, I don't think, any. unless you're a journalist and you go to the Nixon Library, I don't think it's been released to the general public yet. As far as I know, that's, that's correct. But it, it has some very controversial and potentially startling information on it. And that's why we've been teasing it out as long as we have. I guess I'll just go ahead and read what the Washington Post reported. Oh, I, I can do a Nixon state. voice. That way, because <laughs> we don't have the actual recording. <laughs> if you want, if you want. I, I have often thought that if there had been a good rap group around in those days, I might have chosen a career in music instead of politics. Boom. Bombshell. Richard Nixon, <laughs> aspiring rap artist. You know, I, I I don't know a lot about hip hop culture, but it's very hard for me to think a of anybody. Fan What's that? After, uh, after you saw Straight Outta Compton, I thought you were suddenly a, a big time fan. Well, yeah, but then the... you told me that that actually wasn't a comprehensive education in hip hop. <laughs> so I, I'm repeating what you've told me. <laughs> but Fair enough. As far as from what I know about hip hop, if I were to make a list of who the most and, and the least hip-hop people are, mm -hmm. I would probably have put Richard Nixon at the bottom of that list prior to hearing this. It's hard to dispute that. That's maybe a controversial statement. I mean, but... his, his rap sheet is certainly comparable with the best of the, you know, the rappers. <laughs> it's, how many of them can claim there's a congressional investigation launched into their activity? That's a fair point, and I'm guessing not very many have a presidential pardon either. So that's a leg up. That's, that's street cred of, of a sort, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would have but, bought at least one of his albums. Oh, I, I'm sure I would have too, if only to own it and have that available for display. I still buy physical media. I think you still buy physical media. We're oddities oh, in yeah. that regard. Oh, yeah, definitely. You've heard the Richard Nixon piano concerto, I'm sure. I haven't. This is Oh, that's, that's worth looking into. That was d during the, I want to say it was the election against Kennedy, they somehow discovered like a little song that Richard Nixon had written on piano, and then they hired a composer to score a full orchestral accompaniment with him, and then they had him play it on one of the talk shows, you know, TV talk shows. Was it any good? Wasn't bad. All Didn't right. remind me of Tupac. I'm not sure much would, because I'm not sure you actually know any Tupac. But... <laughs> You're not supposed to say that, David. That's interesting, though. So maybe there was more you know, corroborating evidence for this statement than we realized that at the time, maybe Nixon really would have been happier in the music industry. I know he came from a very musical family. Uh, his mother loved music. They all played musical instruments. Yeah, very that's Very interesting. 
I'm not sure we have much deeper analysis to offer here. It's just, you know, it brightened my day. Hopefully. I thought it was fun. <laughs> Hopefully it can but, brighten somebody else. You know, we're 10 minutes into the podcast at this point. We haven't gotten anything of substance. So let's talk about Pokemon Go. Exactly, exactly. All right, and how it enters into the 2016 election that I alluded to earlier. You may recall, for some reason, a journalist asked Hillary Clinton about Pokemon Go. I, I assume just because it was a hot topic of the day in general. The reasons why remain obscure to me. But you may recall her saying this after I've relayed it. She said she hoped that the youths of America would, quote, Pokemon go to the polls. <laughs> I do remember that. That's right. <laughs> and I, I, I remember I imagine... when, when uh, you know, Putin invaded Crimea and there was that, that secretary general of Crimea. And I, I guess people in Japan had started drawing her as an anime character. And when, <laughs> when a reporter showed well. that to her, she responded, I'm an attorney, not a Pokemon which I've thought is the greatest catchphrase for an attorney. Similar to the guy who was very desperate to assure the judge he wasn't a cat. <laughs> yeah. Listeners lawyers seem very intent well. in, in making sure people know that they are not things that aren't sapient. Yeah. Well, last week we, we dealt with a similar situation with the lawyer dog conundrum. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it was a lawyer cat or a lawyer Pokemon. That's but a fair point. At any rate, this, this story that we're going to be talking about now you know, is... It's, I, I meant to mention with that lawyer dog thing, it, if you pay attention in these news stories where judges tend to side in favor of whatever the police are doing, there seems to be sort of an assumption going on there that, well, it's actually not an assumption. It's actually the arguments that the police tend to make in these cases. They say, well, Your Honor, I'm sure most people would have known that he was saying, I want a lawyer dog. But I'm just so doggone stupid, like all the rest of these cops, and this is a reasonable mistake for me to make. And judges go, gee, you know, cops really are stupid. But we sure need them, so, so we'd better leave room for mistakes like that one. And that happens more than you would believe. Yeah, I guess I'd like to clarify that the Lex Rex Institute does not take any particular position on the relative intelligence of police officers. I, I, I really think police officers can understand human speech, that they are able to follow basic lines of reasoning. You I know. think the organization can endorse that. <laughs> Beyond that, we'll, we'll leave it unspoken. I, I, just to be clear, I'm saying these judges are wrong to assume that cops are morons. Okay, okay. Better. Anyway, <laughs> this next story, though... <laughs> certainly don't endorse those opinions. <laughs> ...comes to us from 2017, so this is back in the heyday, but... Recently, the details of this case were uncovered through the magic of the Public Records Act of California. That's a, that's a good act to be aware of. That Very similar to the Freedom of Information Act. I know somebody who got a job just from making a Public Records Act request. How did someone get a job through that? He, he, was, he was a teacher, and th there were some allegations made against him, and he was being investigated for those and he said well I want your records relating to you know this student it made a PRA and the union offered to hire him off of that that's interesting for a much higher paying job than he had previously hmm. so there you go political activism community involvement these things can be good for you in multiple ways I suppose yeah you, so just you don't have to be a lawyer to make PRA requests just so you right. guys are aware right so 
through the magic of PRA, we bring you the saga, and it's truly a tale worthy of cinematic retelling of police corruption and rot in the heart of a police department. It's, it's unbelievable, really. The, the things it's they uncover. Serpico-like. At any rate, two LAPD officers were stationed in a patrol car in an alley across the street, I think possibly literally across the street, from an active crime scene. I think it was a robbery, something like that. Yeah, so mm -hmm. they're waiting in their car, and this crime goes down across the street, right? Exactly. And the call goes out asking for a police officer to respond. And they leap into action call. and reverse their car down the alley to the other side, pretending they don't have the call, are not in the area, and instead head out in pursuit of two rare Pokemon. But, but, they catch That's true. They, the they win in their battles with Snorlax and Togetic. <laughs> Two of Los Angeles' yeah, most so. wanted. <laughs> well, David, David, you gotta catch them all. You do. That is that is what they say. That is what they say. Yeah, that's that's not just a marketing thing. It's it's legally required. So among other things, and you can you can find this file online. I believe Vice.com ran the article that we got this from. But there's about a 50-page internal file that's available through the PRA. Some of it's and redacted. It's, it's the whole disciplinary proceeding against these officers because of what they did. Yes. Now, some of it is redacted, but most of it isn't. Among other things, they had this little gem in there where it says, the officers left the location and began driving to 50th and Crenshaw, according to the IA file. This is from the Vice article. Quote, as they drove through the residential area, their speed appeared faster than the speed limit, and they went through a stop sign. Yeah, so that that's protecting and serving, I suppose, is catching the Pokemon. So much so that they had to break traffic laws en route to apprehend this villainous, dangerous Snorlax. <laughs> you know, their job is catching criminals. I would think that would be more interesting than catching Pokemons. Well, what you may not realize is that these particular Pokemon were wanted for parole violations or something. <laughs> did, uh, did you read the transcript? Because they've got, they've got a transcript of these, what these two officers said the whole time. I have read some of the transcripts. I guess transcript. they do have cameras inside the cars. I've read some of the transcripts, not all of it. My, my favorite part of the transcript is at the very end, one of the officers says, the other guys are going to be so jealous of us. <laughs> I remember that, yes. <laughs> and I then, think, of course, they both get fired. I think this was when they had, on, on the recording, say, uh, said that they were going to go hang out at the 7-Eleven <laughs> and <laughs> compare the Pokemon they'd caught. You saw one of them had been working at, at LAPD for 17 years. The other one, I think, was almost nine years as well. Yeah, these were not... Seven years. These were I think it was seven years. Not a rookie cop. Seven years, 10 months, 20 days, it says. Wow. Other ones, seven, 17 years, 11 months, five days. And so we can assume these guys were both at least in their mid-20s because I don't think you can be a minor and work for the police department. Yeah, so if, I guess if the guy that had worked there for almost 18 years started when he was two, then yeah, he'd be 20. <laughs> well, the other guy, if he was there for less than eight years, he... Had to be at least 25. Right. So, not teenagers, it's, I guess, is my point here. Yeah. That, so, next time you call 911... Hopefully you don't get these I guys. Guess. Well, you, you won't, because they were ultimately fired. You won't fired. get these guys. But <laughs> right. I want to I read another little excerpt here from the article. Uh, let me share that with you. And part of this is Vice commenting. Part of it is directly quoting from the internal affairs file. They say, LAPD cop cars have cameras that record video and audio in them. 
Quote, the officers did not realize their digital in-car video was activated, the IA file said. Backing their vehicle away from the call in the alley was clearly an attempt to drive away from the location without being seen. Otherwise, the officers would have just have driven forward out of the alley on Crenshaw Boulevard. This, however, yeah. would have put them in clear sight of the robbery in progress call, making it more difficult to avoid the call. <laughs> the officers' statements to each other while they no, were backing away. They seem pretty committed to avoiding that call. The officers' statements to each other while they were backing away from the call clearly showed they had no interest in assisting. Now, that's true if we're talking about the robbery. If we're talking about their pursuit of Pokemon, I think they had lots of interest in assisting with that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You saw that one of the charges against them was literally playing Pokemon Go while on duty? Yes, and this is the, the, the last thing that I want to specifically share from the IA file. It says, count five, on or about April 15th, 2017, that's when this took place, back in the heyday of Pokemon Go, you, while on duty, were playing Pokemon Go while on patrol in your po police vehicle. And it's... I, I, I love the transcript, too, because every time it mentions a Pokemon name, it says spelling, yeah. question mark, in parentheses. Because court reporters, stenographers, are not trained to know Pokemon names, believe it or not. No, a lot of people not. don't know that, but that's, that's actually true. Anyway, to, to complete the quote, this board finds you guilty. And <laughs> this whole time... As I was reading this story and reading through read, the read file... The Sorry, I interrupted that. Okay, pull, okay. Pull that up again. <laughs> Count five. On or about April 15th, 2017, you, while on duty, were playing Pokemon Go while on patrol in your police vehicle. This board finds you guilty. <laughs> while I was reading... Poke... Well, they, they weren't playing Pokemon Go while on duty. <laughs> they shouldn't have been found guilty of that. That's... A... I suppose you could take up their case for them if they want That's to reach out to you. That's not even a thing. If they want to, they want to contact the Lexrex Institute, maybe we can now, get there. Generally, just that's actually a misconception people do have. Commonly, typographical errors are not cause for getting a charge dismissed. People try that all the time on traffic court stuff. Like, you know, they wrote one of the numbers from my license plate wrong or something like that. That's interesting. I have not heard that one before. I'll scratch that off my list. It does not work. <laughs> but while I was reading this file, particularly the, the first-hand documents from the police department, I couldn't help but feel so bad for whatever poor IA officials were assigned to this case, clearly <laughs> having no idea what was going on. They, they tried to find various ways of describing what the police officers were doing. They said they were in pursuit of mythical characters and well, that it, they were trying if, to if earn points. you don't understand points. the game... It makes no sense that you'd be walking around to play this this video game, essentially. Right, and it's like I, I can I can imagine trying to explain the way Pokemon Go works to a judge, and <laughs> it's I not. I wouldn't envy that. It would task. not be a pleasant experience. No, I would not envy whoever is in that position. <laughs> I I had one case where. I was in front of the judge, and I was basically trying to draw to the judge's attention the fact that. Uh, my client's creditor had been engaging in like various harassing kinds of conduct. He had access to her bank account numbers, uh, social security number, all, all sorts of information that there's no way for him to get other than stealing her identity, pretending to be her on the phone, that sort of thing. And I point all this out and the judge says, well, maybe he did it on the computer. You can do anything on the computer. 
It's a magic box. <laughs> it's it's yeah no I think that's kind of how judges view it. It's like a, it's like a demonic box that sits on your desk, <laughs> and we know things go in and we know things come out, but there's no accounting for what happens in between. That's right, because some people want to treat the internet like a series of tubes, but it's not. Or actually, I think I have that backwards. I think if they wanted to treat it like it was a dump truck, but it's not. It's a series of tubes. To be clear, this guy probably could have gotten my client's information on the internet, but doing that would also have been illegal. Right. Just because you do it <laughs> online. I guess we're not, offering, we're not offering legal advice here, so this is not advice. I'll just observe that generally speaking, just because you did it online doesn't mean it's not a crime. We did end up winning on that case anyway, but that point good. frustrated me. That would be a terrible reason to lose. <laughs> Understandably. So anyway, I guess if we have a, to try to make some kind of general legal point here, the PRA is a useful tool sometimes. Yes, you can and, learn uh, all about people's Pokemon Go habits. And whatever equivalent <laughs> right. on, state on may to, have. Now that we're almost a half hour in, on to actual legal news. Right. Last week. It's May 2nd. For Shirtleft? So, so the, the opinion we're about to look at was issued on May 2nd. Okay. So the case was Shirtleft v. Boston. That's the city of Boston where I mostly grew up. Uh, something that you like to hold against me, but I hope that the, yes, the listeners Yes, and we're won't. about to see why. <laughs> I, will, I will say this concerns a particular policy that the city of Boston has program, I, I should say more than policy, because that's actually one of the, the key p, uh, points here, that there was no policy. I literally didn't know this existed, so make of that what you will. But basically... So, so the, case, the case is Shirtleff, is, is that how you pronounce that? Shirtleff I, I v. Boston. Yeah, I haven't heard anyone pronounce that out, out loud. It certainly looks like Shirtleff. He can forgive again, us if we've like, pronounced it wrong. So last week we looked at the Kennedy case, yep, Kennedy which was Robinson. a free exercise case. Mm -hmm. This is also going to be a free exercise case, although this one ends up going 9-0 with the Supreme Court. So, David, why don't you explain the issues in this case? Boston City Hall has three flagpoles outside it. Interestingly enough, this is just a, a general observation. Justice Stephen Breyer wrote the majority opinion in this case. He spends, in my opinion, an inordinate amount of time talking about the actual design of Boston City Hall for some reason. I don't know what motivated him to do it's, that. It's considered one of the most hideous buildings in the world. It depends on who you ask. I tend to agree if, with that. If, okay, try it. If, if you listen to this, go on Google, search most hideous, brutalist <laughs> buildings, and the boss, I guarantee the Boston City Hall will come up. It's probably on those lists. I think that might be slightly overblown. I'm not a fan of it myself. But for some I, reason, I he, he, felt compelled, just... he felt compelled to talk about it. I thought that was noteworthy. But at any rate, there are three flagpoles outside City Hall. One flies the U.S. flag, one flies the state flag. The third usually has the city's flag, but there's a program that the city has where citizens can register a time. You fill in an application saying you'd like to fly a particular flag for a particular period of time, whether that's to promote an event or just send a message. So among the examples they cited in the case, a local bank flew a flag there to advertise that they were having yeah. an event. They flew a rainbow that, that flag. That was probably the one that was most relevant to the finding, actually. Yes. It's, 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 a lot of them were things that the city wanted to endorse or that were associated with the city. But the fact that they promoted a bank and you know, other businesses like that shows that it was not just an attempt to promote things the city values, 
but it was sort of a public forum. Right. Now, the complainant in this case, Shirtleff, I think his name was Harold Shirtleff, approached the city hall asking to fly a flag for an organization he was involved with. I believe it was called Camp Constitution. And they wanted to host an event and fly what they described as, quote, a Christian flag. So essentially, I think the description was that it was a white flag with a blue field with a red cross. Yeah, that, that's a very, very common one in Christian circles. Mm -hmm. Now, the city rejected their application on the grounds that permitting it would violate the First Amendment by... Would, would constitute an unconstitutional government endorsement of religion because they're flying it outside a government building and it endorses religion. That was the argument. Right. Ultimately, the court ruled it was a unanimous decision. 9-0 yes. against them. And, and this is... So we talked last week about the lemon test. Mm -hmm. This might finally put the lemon test in the grave for good, although that's been said before, only to find the lemon test was buried not quite six feet under and for it to come back in the next term. But <laughs> did you read Gorsuch's concurring opinion in this case? I did, and we should probably address that in general. Gorsuch's opinion wasn't a concurrence with Breyer's opinion. What it was was a concurrence in judgment, but both he and Alito filed separate opinions because they didn't agree with the reasoning that Breyer right. employed. Gorsuch has complained about it, maybe both of their complaints, I don't remember, so, I, I did read both, was that Breyer had relied on what he described as an established test for determining whether something is government speech. Both yes, of them disputed that it was in fact an established test. Yeah, well, and it's what Breyer ends up concluding is, is he looks at whether or not this flag constitutes government speech, mm -hmm. concludes that it doesn't because of what we just mentioned a moment ago about you know, various private parties being able to fly whatever they wanted there. He looks at mm -hmm. what the policy was. Apparently the person that inspected the applications didn't ever make a judgment about whether or not certain flags would go up. So mm -hmm. you know, concludes that no, this was not government speech. And then because it's not government speech, the analysis then becomes, is it viewpoint discrimination? And he concludes that it is viewpoint discrimination because they're saying that religious people can't fly this flag. And what Gorsuch ends up saying in his concurrence is really just sort of a 20-page diatribe against the, the lemon test yes, and says, we wouldn't even get cases like this in front of us if the lemon test hadn't caused far more confusion than it alleviated. Because now cities are basically on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, if they say anything about religion, they're potentially violating the Establishment Clause. And Boston had admitted again and again that was its reason for disallowing this flag. But if they say, no, you can't talk about your religion or you can't fly this flag or you can't have this religious display, well, then it's potentially viewpoint discrimination, which is what this case concluded. Right. And there's, there's a relatively funny section in what Gorsuch wrote does ultimately lemon devolves into a kind of children's game? Start with a Christmas scene, a menorah, or a flag, then pick your own reasonable... Oh, this, this requires a little bit of explanation. So lemon was modified by the County of Allegheny v. ACLU 1989, in which Justice O'Connor wrote an opinion saying that we analyze the lemon factors under a reasonable person analysis. So he's making fun of kind of the reasonable person way of analyzing this. And he says, in this game, the Avatar's default settings are lazy, uninformed about history, and not particularly inclined to do legal research. His default mood is irritable. <laughs> to play, expose your Avatar to the display and ask for his reaction. How does he feel about it? 
Mind you, don't ask whether the proposed display actually amounts to an establishment of religion. Just ask if he feels it endorses religion. If so, game over. Right. And this is, we alluded to this last week when we talked about Kennedy v. Bremerton. There's, I think, a tremendous amount of confusion about the First Amendment in the typical American's mind now to the extent that any casual association of a religious symbol, emblem, sentiment, whatever it may be, with an institution of government is enough to violate the Establishment Clause. And I think that's... Yeah, and the courts, everybody on the court, all nine of them agreed that is not the case. Right. The difficulty... And, and Bre Breyer, who's probably, you know, if, if you were to align the justices in terms of how consistently their rulings go with a particular political ideology, if you were to do that, Breyer probably falls at the very far left of the court, and he's the one that wrote the opinion in this case. Yeah. Both Boston and the, the other party last week that we talked about, Bremerton School District, it's gotten to a point where government actors of all kinds seem to be terrified of any religious symbol on the... And that's because of Lemon. Yeah. On the basis that if someone sees it in a way that's associated very, however loosely with the government, that they will take it to be an endorsement of, of that religion. And that, you know, Lemon might be a clear, it, I don't think it is, but it might be a clear test to lawyers and judges. It's certainly not a clear test to the average legislator. No. And, you know, it, it's pretty telling that both the ACLU mm -hmm. and the Biden administration sided with the group that was trying to fly the flag in this case, sided against the city of Boston. Boston were pretty much the only ones in the country who thought that this wasn't allowed. Yep. We've been, we've been emphasizing that this was a 9-0 decision. On one hand, that's noteworthy because that probably means it's a clear answer. But I do want to note, though, and we'll, we'll get much more into this in our next topic, there's a perception in the public that every decision at the Supreme Court is contentious. Everyone is split along partisan lines. That's very far from the truth. The most common result in almost every year they've been tracking this data the most common outcome for a Supreme Court case has been nine nothing, except for like one or two yeah. years when it was eight to one. And we, we actually, we talk about this in our, our video about how a case gets to the Supreme Court, but in order to even be heard by the Supreme Court, these are the hardest, most uncertain questions in law that they were even appealed this far. And then even at that point, enough of them are sufficiently clear that the plurality of cases do go nine zero. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's important to emphasize that because there's been a lot, in, again, we will talk much more about this momentarily, but there has been this growing sentiment, or at least in the media, maybe not actually reflective of public opinion, but that's noteworthy too, that legal interpretation is really just politics with a mask on. And I think yeah. this is one of the cases that indicates that's not the, that's not the case at all. There right. are very real, clear answers to a great many legal questions and we, we addressed this in the ask an attorney video that came out well when this comes out it'll be last friday when that, that just came out okay i haven't seen where that yet we talk so yeah that's sort of the idea that legal precedent is addressing us the reason that we have it if enough issues have already been decided in the past the vast majority of legal questions are clear by way of recourse to those cases and far from being just another form for partisan politics in many instances, maybe even in most instances, it's a very technical question. It's about relating parts to other parts. Right. And the justices here disagreed on 
what the appropriate test was. Right. But I don't think any of them disagreed on what the outcome of those tests would be if they were applied. Correct. And none of them disputed the basic principle, which was that if it was private speech, and they all agreed it was for various reasons, but they all agreed that it was private speech, that there's no case for discriminating against it. And Yeah, because you can't do that either. Right. And actually, speaking of that, the, the private speech versus government speech, that is ultimately what this case hinged on. Everyone agreed that flying this flag would constitute private speech. One of the things I thought was noteworthy was that they concluded this in part because there was no written policy the city had governing who could fly what flags. For all intents and purposes, the only part they played was coordinating who got to use the flagpole at what time. So you filled in an application, but that was almost exclusively, and in practice, I think they said this was the only flag they'd ever rejected. Uh, I could be wrong about That's, that. That but, is what they said. Okay. Yeah. That's tantamount to the government not playing any part in the message. Um, that's being conveyed by these flags. It's really just scheduling at that point. One of the things I thought and was- Apparently the applicant, so the application to fly a flag asked nothing about viewpoints. It was, they only asked for the contact information of the applicant and a brief description of the event and the proposed dates and times. Mm -hmm. One of the things I thought was fascinating <laughs> was that at the tail end of all of this, which has probably cost the city quite a lot of money to keep fighting this issue in court. Oh, I'm sure. This has been going on for a long time. Obviously, it has to be appealed through various levels, various different courts to even reach this point. And at the far end of it, one of the things they said was, well, yeah, now we'll come up with a written policy. And <laughs> it's one of these instances. This is something that the, the last- I, I don't know why do. they kept fighting it. That's a good question. I don't know beyond- Like They keep saying their goal here was they didn't want to get sued for- Right. Establishment clause issues. And then this guy just comes to sue them for- you know, free exercise issues and, and freedom of expression issues. Yeah. So, I, you know, we could speculate on what the real motives would be. I have my thoughts. You probably have your thoughts. And they're just sinister Bostonians, we'll, right? We'll, we'll take them at their word. We'll do them <laughs> the favor and just say then if that was indeed their goal, it wasn't well calculated because they ended up spending, I'm sure, a great deal of money. But there are very few ways to make your lawsuit more expensive than appealing it enough times that it goes to the Supreme Court. Right. And at the, at the far end of it, the conclusion is basically just make sure you check all the boxes from the beginning, <laughs> and then this won't right. happen. This is something we've yeah. emphasized in different articles and videos before, but this is one of the things that we really want to make clear to the American public and to any politicians who may be listening. Do your homework. Do it the right way. Make sure you've taken care of the sort of the nuts and bolts, and that will resolve a lot of your issues. Oh, yeah. Now, speaking of, as we were a moment ago, about the politicization of the Supreme Court, I think there's the, the elephant in the room that we have yet to address, and that's our next subject of discussion. And that's going to be the recent Supreme Court leak. That's now, right. I want to make it very, very clear that the Lex Rex Institute has a policy that we will not, under any circumstances, comment on the legal analysis of Justice Alito's leaked brief. Right. We believe that, well, and we'll explain to you in a couple minutes why, but we, we believe that there are very few things that could potentially cause more damage to the neutrality and independence of the Supreme Court than sensationalizing pre-published briefs. Yeah, what is, in the most extreme case, a working file. Right. So to recap, I'm sure most of you who have any interest in listening to this sort of podcast will know these details already, but 
The Supreme Court has been deliberating over a case from Mississippi. It pertains to a Mississippi case. It's been in deliberation for some time. Last week, someone sent a document to Politico, which they published, purporting to be a draft opinion, purporting to be a draft majority opinion. We won't talk much about the, the contents. The one thing that has made all the headlines, the reason why people are talking about this, is that this document explicitly referred to overturning the precedent from Roe v. Wade. And, and Casey. And Casey, yes. And uh, yeah, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Which is a much less famous cousin of Roe v. Wade, but... Which is insane, because Casey is controlling law. Right. Casey is arguably substantially more important precedent for the current state of American law. Yeah. So do we want to get into sort of what Roe v. Wade and Casey did? Yeah, I think so. Probably important because among other things, we won't be, again, we won't be talking about the details of this document. We will be talking in general about what changing precedent would entail. So we should yeah. first establish what Roe and Casey are. Yeah. So just to be clear, prior to 1972, which is when Roe v. Wade was decided, abortion was not considered to be a constitutional issue. States wrote their own laws pertaining to abortion. Most, if not all, I don't know exactly, but most, if not all states banned abortion. The, the opinion of Roe v. Wade actually refers to that, says that most states have laws that make abortion a crime. Abortion had been considered to be a crime really since even before we have recorded law. I've got this quotation from Blackstone. He says, "Life." He, this is talking about basic rights. He mentions life as one of the basic rights. And he says, life is the immediate gift of God a right inherent in nature in every individual, and it begins in contemplation of law as soon as an infant is able to stir in the mother's womb. If a woman is quick with child, and by a potion or otherwise killeth it in her womb, or anyone beat her whereby the child dieth in her body, and she is delivered of a dead child, this, though not murder, was by the ancient law homicide or manslaughter. So that was sort of the standing law when it came to abortion. Not endorsing that, I'm not criticizing that, but that was standing law. Roe v. Wade comes in and totally upends that, says that abortion is now required to be legal in every state in the union. The Constitution protects the right to an abortion. And it upholds that based on a number of, you know, kind of vague hand-waving toward a number of constitutional clauses, but predominantly they rely upon a 1965 ruling, Griswold v. Connecticut, which said that there is a constitutionally protected right to privacy. They found this. So we've got rights that are explicitly stated in the Constitution, things like free speech, things like freedom of religion, the comfortable ones we were just talking about. Then we've got rights that are implied by other rights in the Constitution, things like free association. If we have free exercise of religion and we have free speech, we must be able to freely associate. Mm -hmm. Then we've got rights that are found in emanations of the penumbras of shadows cast by the rights that are implied in the Constitution. Yeah. And that's the, that's the third kind of right that the Constitution protects according to Griswold. Again, not endorsing or criticizing this. Yeah, and Roe v. I Wade... want to jump in real quickly just to state a penumbra, because probably not many people even know this word. There's no real reason you should outside of this particular context. But That's a, pretty true. A penumbra <laughs> is the edge of a shadow. So the metaphor, to a certain extent, speaks for itself. Things that emanate from the be end seen. of a shadow. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not in the shadows of the rights that are implied by the Constitution. It emanates 
from the penumbras, so the edges of the shadows cast by the rights that are implied by the Constitution. Right. And we've got to protect those. So that's what the right to privacy is. And when Roe v. Wade ends up being decided seven years after Griswold, they find predominantly on the basis of the right to privacy and say that, you know, every state in the union's got to protect abortion. You can't, and, and they impose this whole trimester framework where there's different things that governments can do with different trimesters within an abortion. Right. Just to be clear, almost everyone, this is not a controversial statement. I know people are going to think it is, but almost everyone agrees that Roe v. Wade was bad law. Yeah, including the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in this particular context has figured large. People saying if she had retired in a timely manner, they would have been able to replace her with a different justice and ultimately got there. But anyway, so all this to say, people who are very concerned about the overturning of Roe v. Wade have appealed to the idea of what Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood for, what she would have done. Ruth Bader oh, she, Ginsburg she was criticized very, Roe. She said she very critical. She said of it Roe was badly Wade. decided. She wasn't politically in favor of abortion rights, but she didn't believe that Roe v. Wade was a well-decided case. Well, and a lot of that was because Roe v. Wade came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So as we also mentioned in our, our precedent video, the way that the, a common law system is supposed to work is sort of the way that scientific progress is supposed to work. By very small increments, very small steps, you're supposed to be able to predict within a very narrow boundary the way the court will rule on a given subject. And literally overnight, we went from most states imposing criminal penalties for abortion to abortion must be legal everywhere. And not just that, but it gets strict scrutiny. Mm -hmm. So if you want to impose any kind of restriction on the right to abortion, it, the, the highest possible threshold of proof has to be met to do it. Right. And, and that was, so, so I think Ginsburg in a 1992 speech in front of New York University, it's a great line, actually. She said, doctrinal limbs too swiftly shaped may prove unstable. And that was her comment on Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. Now, I, we're not saying she would not have agreed with the, the holding in Roe v. Wade. I think she probably would have preferred to ground it on grounds of 14th Amendment equal protection, that because only women can get abortions, not permitting abortion is, in effect, a law of sexual of sex discrimination. That's from what I know and think about her jurisprudence. I think that's plausible, but obviously that's that's a degree of speculation. But I think she may. I think she may have mentioned that at some point. Okay. But uh, you know, she, but just to be clear, she was very very critical of Roe v. Wade. At one point, she actually sort of suggests the justices decided were motivated by goals of eugenics. Uh, that was in a 2009 interview with Emily Bazelon from the New York Times Magazine. Uh, you know, she just straight up says that at the time they were concerned about growth in undesirable populations, and that's why they decided the way they did. So, yeah, even if even the widely regarded as most left-leaning justice on the court did not like this decision, this was not a real popular decision. Roe v. Wade is not a thing that's well-liked by people who understand its holding. Yeah, and again, to clarify, we're talking about the coherence of its reasoning more than anything when we say that. that. That's right. So what does Casey end up doing? Well, so this is where things start to get complicated. In 1992, in the case Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the court looks at a Pennsylvania law that had imposed restrictions on abortion. It required, I think, informed consent, spousal notice, parental consent, and there might have been something else that it required too. But 
they end up looking at this law and they change basically every single part of the test that was applied under the Roe regime. And rather than looking, you know, applying this strict scrutiny standard, they, they change the standard to undue burden, whether or not the particular law imposes an undue burden on a woman's right to an abortion. They get rid of the entire trimester framework. Really, I think that honestly looking at Casey, I think it's very difficult to to suggest that Casey didn't overturn Roe v. Wade, but the court in Casey says that they are going to continue to uphold the quote-unquote essential holding of Roe, so it's not considered technically overturning Roe. But as you can see, these cases are in direct conflict. These cases both continue to be law. There's a lot of tension here. Yeah. So that's why the Roe v. Wade getting overturned has been threatened for really decades at this point, because it's a legal regime that came from out of nowhere and is radically inconsistent with itself. And so on the one hand, regarding this document, this leaked document, I guess for for ease of reference, we can call it a draft opinion, but it's debatable whether we even should, because ultimately it's a document that came from somewhere within the Supreme Court's files, but we don't know for sure anything about it really could have been prepared by clerks, could have been prepared by a justice, could have been prepared by a lot of people for any number of purposes. And, and lots of times, even if it's a draft they voted on, many, many times judges will change their opinions prior to the publication. Yeah, so of, of, you can't say on the basis of this document that we know what the decision will be, let alone what the actual opinion will entail, what the legal reasoning will be. And I suspect that was probably the goal of whoever leaked it is they wanted to show that there's a sufficient political pressure on the court to persuade them not to rule this way. Yeah. So in any case, among other things this document would purport to do were it to become law, is to overturn Roe v. Wade. But it's not clear exactly what that even entails anymore, given the confusion that results from Roe v. Wade's interaction with the Casey case. And just to be clear, if Roe v. Wade, I, I think that the draft opinion was purported to overrule both of those past cases. Yeah. But if we were to return to a pre-Roe legal regime as far as abortion is concerned, I'm not suggesting that's what this opinion does or what the eventual opinion of the court will do. Right. But if that's what were to happen, we would go back to states can make laws about abortion. They cannot make laws about abortion. Practically speaking, very little would change from where we are right now until states started proliferating new laws. Yeah, and part of the reason the current landscape is a little bit messy as far as abortion law in this country is that with the viability standard that Casey imposed, there's a lot of questions that come with that because how do you precisely determine viability is an open question. And it's a question that's really not particularly well suited to law. It's making judges answer scientific questions it's not quite as bad as making them answer questions about computers, or, but it's or, pretty bad. Or Pokemon. But <laughs> or Pokemon. <laughs> it's not great because they're not experts in that. The case, you know, the, the viability will vary with the individual circumstance enormously. And any change in the science would necessitate change in the way the law is applied. So that's part of the reason why things are confused in general and why there are so many cases that end up being fights about how to apply the existing precedent in terms of state law because yeah. they're fighting about what it means for a pregnancy to be viable. Well, and that's what, I did a lot of work on the Nifla v. Becerra case a few years ago, which was a challenge to California's 
statute, which essentially required pro-life family planning places to provide pro-abortion propaganda so that women would know that abortions are better and they would go get those instead. And we challenged that. We ended up winning on that case. But a lot of the, the point that I was really insistent that we stress and that ended up getting heard in oral argument before the Supreme Court was A, distinguishing that case from informed consent cases because you know both of those are the state requiring compelling speech from mm -hmm. an ostensibly medical provider. And then secondly, showing the way that Roe v. Wade's and Casey's extension of the Griswold standard for you know, Griswold right to privacy really does impact a lot of other areas of law in ways that have not been properly explored, mm -hmm. but which threaten our jurisprudence in the future. Yeah. You know, this, this has been, the court's been looking at related issues for a long time and the tensions have been getting worse and worse. There's a couple of ways you can go with that. It's, you really don't want to overturn precedent. There's the argument also that Roe v. Wade was directly at odds with precedent. The other thing you got to understand is, actually, Gorsuch talks about this in the case we were talking about previously, the Boston case. But in the 1970s, so 1960s through the 1970s, the Supreme Court was a lot more, well, what's the way to put it? Well, how did Gorsuch put it? Let's find I forget exactly what he said. I enjoyed the term, but we may yeah. say permissive with respect to itself. Yes. <laughs> they had a much broader idea of what legal and I, th I think he said they're much looser in their in the way they would construe the language of statutes or the Constitution, mm -hmm. which I think that's a safe statement. That's kind of why Roe v. Wade came out of nowhere. I would say that the court nowadays and courts in general nowadays are much, much more deferential to what the law actually says rather than judges just voicing their own opinions about things. And that creates a difficulty when it comes to standards like Lemon, which was again a 1960s case, right. or Roe v. Wade, an early 1970s case. And this again pertains to the, the last case we were talking about with Boston, where at the end of the day, they sort of threw up their hands and were like, well, I guess we should have instituted a policy, huh? There's been a pernicious tendency in many ways for Congress to rely on some of these sort of tentpole decisions to prop up deficiencies in their legislative program. And yeah. one of the things I think to keep in mind because their media in general likes to engender conflict, likes to make you think that big things are always at stake. And in some instances they are, in some instances they're not. But there's been a sort of tendency from the coverage that I've seen to imply that this document, this draft, if it became the opinion of the court, would illegalize abortion in the country, which it wouldn't. Right. It would revert the question yeah. to state legislatures or to Congress potentially. Yes, but that's, that's the part that's been ignored in a lot of the commentary about this is, and again, not commenting on the draft opinion. I don't know if the draft opinion says anything about this. I've consciously avoided reading much of I it. I have as well. But I, the, there's no reason Congress couldn't legislate about this. Right, and I think that, that goes some way toward explaining the misconception of Roe that seems to exist. Roe and Casey, we'll sort of talk about them as a unit, the jurisprudence on abortion. I think a lot of people have the sense, maybe unformed and maybe if you... I, I, I do want to be clear, though. Casey's actually controlling law. Right. So they're really mad that Casey got overturned. Yeah. Or, you know, is would, will potentially be overturned. Yes. 
I think even maybe even if you put the question to them directly, they would know to say that this isn't the case. But I think emotionally and sort of subconsciously, people believe that those cases made abortion legal and getting rid of them makes it illegal. That's not the case. What they did is say that access to abortion is a constitutional right. That's hugely different from saying that in either Congress or the states can legislate rules about how to yeah. access abortion. Abortion might even, I'm not gonna voice my opinion on this, but abortion might even be a right. It's not the same as the constitution protecting it. Right, that's a much narrower category, much narrower. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that. Among other things, I've seen a lot of hand-wringing about the fact that allegedly most Americans don't favor overturning these cases. Yeah, and, and then on the other hand, they complain about the politicization of the court. That's very yeah, they true. They say it's become an overly political body, and then they respond to that by saying, but the majority of Americans think it should rule this way. Right, directly so expressly advocating a court that makes political decisions, while on the other hand, complaining that it's too political. Exactly, but this may indicate that properly speaking, this case was always political and shouldn't have been yes. an issue for the court to decide to begin with. Well, and the fact that people have responded the way they have, like I've seen gleeful celebrations from the right and, and not, you know, not gleeful that millions of babies might be saved, but gleeful that the left lost on something. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, the left making every kind, I, I, you, you can't exaggerate some of the reactions from the left about this, but both sides have shown that this is clearly something that emotions run very deep on, something that is very closely related to their political affiliation. Mm -hmm. Sure looks like a political issue to me. Right, and structurally, I think there's a pretty strong case to argue that the Constitution is silent about it. Yeah, and, and it's, if, if you voice your opinion about opinions of the Supreme Court, and when you do that, all you're doing is just saying, well, the court should have ruled in favor of the thing that I like better, or the thing that I think is morally right, or the thing that I believe our society ought to be advancing, shame on you. Yeah. That's, that's not how the Supreme Court's supposed to rule. The Supreme Court's supposed to look at our law and see whether or not it says a particular thing. Their opinions don't get involved in it at all. Their assessment of right and wrong doesn't get involved in it at all. There's, there's an old quote, I'm going to forget who, names of who was involved, but it was one judge to another, and one judge says, do justice, do justice. And the other responds back, I will do no such thing. My job is to interpret and apply the law. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly <laughs> correct. I, I agree in broad strokes. I want to clarify, we're not saying that there are never political decisions that get made by courts. Clearly there are. Sometimes they, they don't reason properly. The speaking. public encourages it. Yeah, so there's that. We know that that's the case. It does happen. As we pointed out earlier, it's not most cases. Most cases seem to be very clear issues of law. That Look, even if it happens most of the time, yep. our, our system of government doesn't work if that's how justices reach their conclusions. Even if that's right. what we currently have, where the majority of our decisions are totally political and our court can't be trusted to accurately apply what past law says, well, we really ought to hope that we can get them back to doing that because we're not gonna keep our country for long if we don't. Exactly, and I, I think too, there's a perverse sense of license that comes from this kind of performative despair about the politicization of the court. When you say to yourself, oh, it doesn't matter, they're not ruling based on law, they're ruling based on preference, and you know, it just becomes another game that goes with the presidential elections, 
you're hoping that your if, guy if gets to make said, the, the nominations. Yeah. But when you... We have a great video on this. It, it's called... Do you remember what it's called, David? Well, we talked about this in that <laughs> same video about uh, McGirt that we talked about last yes. week. Yeah, um, that's right. No reason pessimism should prevail. I think we've talked about it elsewhere. It's an issue that I care a lot about. But... Yeah, what it's, I, it's an important What one. I basically want to get at is when you have that attitude, when you let that govern your interpretation, when you let that govern your involvement in politics, you're really just giving yourself license to treat it as a political game. Exactly. If you say everyone's exactly cheating right. anyway, then you're just going to cheat back. Because if, if everyone's cheating, you want to make sure the quote-unquote right side wins. We and can't the, the do that. that can't... We can't operate that way. It, it will collapse all of the foundations that America is built on if we let that view have its its head. And the part that really irks me is, you're, you're absolutely right, David, but the part that really irks me is that of all the times to complain about the court being overly political, mm-hmm. now is not it. You know, if you'd said this about the court 50 years ago, you would have been right. Even if you'd said this about the Rehnquist courts, and, you know, going the other way, more toward the conservative end of things, you might have been right. Nowadays, Courts are actually pretty careful. If you look at at least the last hundred years of judicial history, courts nowadays are pretty careful to rule consistently with what statutes and the Constitution says. Yep. No, I, That was not the case for a while. I agree. I think in a more sober analysis, there is actually a lot of reason to be optimistic about the way the court has been going, up to and including the nomination process for our most recent appointee, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. There was an immediate political reaction from Republicans where they were, you know, it was all about, she's so terrible, all these stuff, you know. I think most of her answers were pretty- A lot pretty, of that was way overblown. I think a lot of her you know, answers I, I did not think she was treated fairly in those hearings. No, and I think a lot of her questions were perfectly reasonable. They weren't, you know, yeah. doctrinaire conservative answers, but by and large, they indicated that she was interested in interpreting the law as it was framed and understanding how that applies to modern circumstances. That's, I think she sounded like an originalist. <laughs> Dirty word for Wh- Which some. really shows the way the tides have gone on yeah. that Because, you know, all, all justices sort of give the politique answer during the confirmation process. Yep. Uh, and the politique answer in 2022 is way different from what it was in 1976. Exactly. Exactly. And whether people will be perfectly consistent with their espoused principles is a different question. But all we can do is judge what they say. And I think what was said during those hearings was, on the whole, pretty good. So I want to look at this New York Times article real quick. Sure. The article is called, Four Reasons the End of Roe v. Wade Terrifies Me. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> already you can see, very clearly written from an angle of trying to generate fear among people that things have gone off the rails. Yeah. And it, the, the, the image at the top is a picture of the Supreme Court building with the, the Corinthian columns across the front of the building shaped to look like teeth, you know, like a vicious Supreme Court attacking your yeah, a monster, your precious Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm. And if you look through, what are her four reasons? I, I kind of just skimmed it because I want to see what the reasons were. First reason is overturning Roe v. Wade will exacerbate an egregious divide. Oh, I missed one, sorry. First one is the Supreme Court's stature has been profoundly and perhaps irrevocably diminished. Second one is what I just read. Overturning Roe v. Wade will exacerbate an egregious divide. Third one is we're devolving further into minority rule. And then the fourth one is, we're already on the edge. This could push us over. Now, I'm no critic of journalism, but if <laughs> if I looked at this argument, I would say you've got one reason 
that you've stated the court's four ways. decision terrifies you. Yeah. What's that? That you've stated four ways. That you've stated four different ways. Yeah. And that is that you think the court's overly political. And it appears that your solution to that is to write an op-ed for the New York Times complaining about the Supreme Court and drawing people's attention to the fact that the opinion of the public is in favor of Roe v. Wade. So, problem. Yep. Court is too political. Solution. Further politicize it. Yeah. No, there's... That's exactly correct. And that, that's been all the commentary that I've heard on this stuff. And, and frankly, it's totally irresponsible of a people who live in a free, free republic where we the people govern. Yeah. And it shows how far apart, I think, the public idea about how the court works, what it's supposed to be doing, is from what I think we as an organization would say it should be doing and how it is supposed to operate. Because public opinion should matter to a judicial opinion about as much as a poll about what a chemical should do should matter to a chemist. Like if you yeah, ask people- cyanide, should cyanide kill people? No, I don't think it should. Well, okay, <laughs> from now on, rat poison won't hurt you. It doesn't make any right. sense. It, that's not the kind of question it is. It's a question about the mechanism of the law. And it's been treated like anything but that. And again, I think in many ways, it comes down to a dereliction of duty on the part of Congress and even the state legislatures, mm -hmm. where if people yes. are this concerned about what's going to happen and that it won't reflect their opinions, you should be thinking about your representatives in that case. You shouldn't be thinking about right. people who don't have a representative part in government, which the Supreme Court justices don't. They don't represent anyone. Well, the late Justice Scalia put it real, real well. It used to be, back in the day, if people didn't like something, they would say, there ought to be a law to prevent that. There ought to be a <laughs> law about that. Yep. Nowadays, if people don't like something, they say, that's unconstitutional. Yep. Well, that's, that's just not true. The Constitution has specific words. It's not that long. You can read it in probably about an hour if you're a slow reader. Yep. It doesn't, there, there's no way that it speaks to all these issues, and, and it shouldn't. Yep. So, I, for now, there, obviously, we could talk about this for a long time. We should probably stop now on this topic and transition to our final segment. Last week, it was the law sauna. This week... This week it has a new name, temporarily at least, and if you like it, let us know about it. If you don't like it, let us know about it. Either way, we'll probably change it next week. It's got to be better than the last sauna. Well, well, we'll see what you think. Burning questions. Takes so hot, they demand an answer. That's way too long. <laughs> well, the, the real name of the segment is Burning Questions. It's the tagline. Burning is, Questions. Is, is, takes, you know, takes so hot, they, de they uh, demand an answer. I'll take it over, Lausanne. I thought I you might. I thought you might. I sense a little hostility still. With, yeah, just a little bit. With the <laughs> idea of something being unconstitutional because it's not liked in mind, let's take a look at our first. Okay. Twitter user James. I don't know exactly. Okay, this, this is obviously responding to something. Yeah, I don't know exactly what he said here. He, he, or, he, or he, said, responds he responds to, to. The, the Brad Ford file, and he says, not so. We are not against free speech. We are against hate speech, which is not the same. Hate speech is not constitutionally protected. So, OG, okay. Is hate um, speech unconstitutional? I, I, do we have time to get into an analysis of constitutional free speech? <laughs> I mean, how, how long are you going to take? Because <laughs> we probably got about 10 minutes. 
Short, you want the short answer here? I think we want the short answer. Look, you can say that you hate people. That's fine. You can say things that offend people. That's fine. You can't say fighting words. Mm -hmm. You can't shout fire in a crowded theater. You can't publish obscenity. That's, I, I, I don't know how this person is defining hate speech, but for the most part, you're allowed to say things that insult people or even groups of people. Yep, that was my understanding. This guy had me worried, you know. He told me it wasn't protected. Not that I plan on saying now, anything you say I'm going to I'm going to kill group yeah you can't do that yep no that, that's that's a, a bit different that's a threat a little bit different I, I don't know what speech he's responding to here but I, I've heard I've heard a lot of things called hate speech that you know illegal hate speech that yeah okay I think we've, we've resolved this one hate speech <laughs> yeah probably so, sorry still, James probably still sorry, protected James. by the Constitution <laughs> because this is America and not Canada or the UK, which I had another one similar to this where someone said, Constitution doesn't protect hate speech. It's the same in the UK, basic civic stuff. <laughs> I suspect- That is not at all the same in the United Kingdom. No. Or can that is, no. I, I actually, funny story. I had a, a phone call once with a, a potential client going through all of these really egregious violations of her constitutional rights, just on and on and on. And she was like, do you think I have a case? And I was like, my goodness, like, this is the most slam dunk case I've ever heard. And then she asks, is it a problem that I'm in Canada? <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, that's going to be reasons. a problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, she's like, well, am I protected there? I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> yeah, it's worth noting that... Not that I don't care about Canadian people's rights. It's just that you don't really have them. <laughs> It's not the way we understand That's not, them. You got the same unalienable rights that we do. You yeah. just don't have legal protection of those rights. Or at least certainly not in a form we would recognize. It's worth noting, one of the key differences between American and British jurisprudence, one of the reasons why we're now independent from them, is that Britain essentially never codified its constitutional rights. British constitution is... The English Bill of Rights. Yes, but that's much more limited than what is typically referred to as the quote-unquote British Constitution, which yes, is... Yes, there are many items in the British Constitution, some of which are written, some of which are not. Right. It's, in many senses, more abstract and philosophical than what we would recognize as a constitution, uh, constitution to be. So, all that to say, the UK person was wrong about America, but right about the UK, where they don't yeah. have protections for what is deemed hate speech, and what is deemed hate speech is very often in flux, and that causes its own problems. That's correct. But. All right, let's look at the next so one. That, that's one down. And again, as we mentioned last week, a dollar a day can help keep that man off Twitter. <laughs> or at least we could help him embarrass himself somewhat less. Yes, <laughs> only say correct things on Twitter. Yes. Okay, this person says... So you have to read, this, this gets complicated because I think this is a screen okay. cap of a TikTok or something. Well, just tell me the order to read these. So top down, basically. Okay, so the original person says, all gun laws are unconstitutional. Okay, I'm gonna let that one go for now. Mm -hmm. That's not true, says the next person. That's not true. Gun laws and restrictions can absolutely be constitutional. Read Scalia's opinion in DC v. Heller. And then somebody, a third person, responds to that and says, keyword, then in all caps, opinion. <laughs> oh my gosh, none of this is right. Nothing, nobody here said a true statement. So what the Constitution says is that 
a well-regulated militia being necessary to the protection of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It doesn't say you can't create laws about guns. It says you can't infringe on a right to keep and bear arms. Mm -hmm. And then what DCV Heller said, the decision that the second person refers to, is that the right to keep and bear arms does apply as to individual Americans. Uh, that actually does devolve upon people. That's not just a right of the state militias. I would think that'd be fairly obvious from the text of the Second Amendment, since it says the right of the people, not the right of the state militia. But Heller clarified that. And then the bottom person who says keyword opinion just needs to watch our video about precedent, I think, because that's not yeah, good. That's, that, that may be the most succinct answer we can give. We hadn't produced that video yet when I was collating yeah. these. So I, you know, these get more disappointing. Like <laughs> the statements get more disappointing as I read them. Yeah, I, I found that sort of, uh, I guess in in narrative senses we'd call that the the twist at the end there. Because genuinely, it's, like, obviously, you can make gun laws. Like gun guns are not treated the same way that religion is. Like if a state has a sales tax, mm -hmm. guns are not automatically exempted to that from that because the Constitution says you have a right to keep and bear arms. You can make gun laws. Yeah, but... You'd probably make more gun laws than that, but at least that. So the key, the key point here, I suppose... Not sure that you can make more gun laws. ...is that, that you shouldn't assume you know what a word means in law because you use it commonly in everyday speech. And in fact, in many instances... That's a good takeaway. <laughs> in many instances, the law is preserving an older sense of words. I'm not sure actually that's, that's particularly true in the case of the word opinion. It obviously has a... Opinion of the court a, is what that right. means. It has a particular application in law that it doesn't have in, in everyday life. And... It doesn't mean their personal opinion. Yeah. <laughs> it means the opinion of the court. We're not talking about... In fact, that's why we say when someone writes a concurrence, we don't call that the opinion, mm -hmm. even though it is an opinion in concurrence with the opinion of the court. Right. So I guess, bear in mind, when we talk about legal opinions, we aren't talking about opinion as distinct from fact. That is not the contrast. No. <laughs> but this person... I only cite DCV Heller facts. <laughs> this person seemed to think it was. This one we have to thank your sister for. She sent this to me earlier today, I think, or maybe yesterday. I'm surprised that these haven't been hot takes from people's opinion of the Supreme Court League yet. Well, well, we'll probably get to those eventually, maybe next week. Okay. Uh, we need to let, oh, we let them, them heat week. up a little bit first. So this yeah. is a, a, a <laughs> clipping of a newspaper article. Habeas petition seeks right to liberty for zoo elephants. Mm-hmm. Oh, goodness. So. Um, you know, it's just habeas corpus. It's not habeas anthropos corpus or whatever it would be. So <laughs> I guess you could show them the elephant body too. Yeah, right? we should. Okay, so I guess first thing is we should clarify what a habeas petition is, uh, what habeas corpus means. On the most literal level, habeas corpus, if I have my Latin correct, means you will have the body. Yeah. And basically, it's, it's a, the legal right, right, to, right to hear the charges yeah. presented against Not you. to be tried uh, and charged in absentia. They have to have you answer to the accusations in court. So, so what was, why is there a pending suit or, or why is there a pending suit against an elephant? What, what's going on here? <laughs> well, I don't know all the details here. I've seen only this clip. To the extent I can piece it together, they may be implying that keeping elephants in a zoo is detaining them without trial. 
Oh, so they think the elephants are being held on suspicion for a crime, and that's the reason they're in the zoo? I'm not entirely clear. I could be, I could be off base, and I don't even have the entire article here. It's just the clipping of the first part. Oh, of this it. is, or this is like equivalent to Guantanamo Bay, <laughs> where they're just being indefinitely detained. This is, the, this is the Gitmo barge from last week. <laughs> yeah. Is this? Uh, I think it's you know, the, what the Fresno Zoo. I, yeah, I've not devoted a great deal of thought to this. And you might think it's ridiculous that I can't just give a knee-jerk opinion on this. In a sense, it absolutely <laughs> is ridiculous that I can't. But what that ought to demonstrate is what we've been talking about this whole episode, really, which is that it's not you don't analyze legal issues just based on what seems ridiculous to you or what seems sensible to you. That's a fair you. point. You have to actually know the law. You have to look at it. And I just have no clue how habeas corpus rights would devolve upon animals. Yep. I don't think they would. I don't think they would either. It's possible that there is something out there that contradicts us. I'm guessing, if anything... I know that trees do have standing. Legal oh, we, standing. We'll have to save that for another time. That that could be... <laughs> that, that's the only reason I question this, is because the Supreme Court's recognized that in some circumstances, you actually can bring a lawsuit on behalf of some trees. Yeah. Usually, people have to be the ones suing. That may be in, yeah, that may be one of the few Supreme Court opinions that would qualify as a legal hot take for the purposes of this segment. Um, so maybe we'll... Well, I already know about it, so it won't work. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. Um, but anyway, I, I'm guessing, if anything, this may be an untested issue, but... By, by the way, I, I'm not... I don't think that saying trees have standing was a particularly good no. opinion no. of the courts. But it, it, what, what it was their opinion, so... Yep. Currently, that's controlling law. Yes. As far as I know, that case did not delve into the case of pachyderms. But no, no. So it did I not. suppose this this may be the first one that we have to leave inconclusive. Yeah, it's weird. But anyway, I, uh, I'm pretty sure that's not right. <laughs> thanks to Vanessa for sending us that one. <laughs> if anyone else has uh, has things like that that they'd like us to consider on this segment, please feel free to send them to us. Uh, you can reach us on Facebook. All right, let's let's do let's, let's one do one more. more. I think. Yeah. Let's see, which one should we go with? Question here is, do I want to do another one where we're going to be able to actually talk about issues of substance or just pick one of the ones that I like the best? I think I'm just going to pick one of the ones that I like the best. <laughs> we did a lot of substance today. Although we started off with, some. this some, is going to be a long episode. Yeah. I apologize, people. It's <laughs> That's probably like an hour and a half of your time that you'll never get back. That's, that's true, but hopefully you've been enriched as a person. All right, here we go. <laughs> okay, this one's long. Mm-hmm. Uh, I see the person. This is from Twitter again. Yes, it right? is, and that's relevant. And that's the relevant. Has actually, an anime to the... picture. Yeah, I always find that people with anime profile pictures tend to have some of the more interesting comments. But anyway, he says a diplomatic way of putting it. He, yes, he says deadline tomorrow. Space three exclamation marks. I do not give Twitter, Elon Musk, or any entities associated permission to use my pictures, information, messages, or posts, both past and future. With this statement, I give notice to Twitter and Mr. T Musk, spelled incorrectly, uh, <laughs> it is strictly forbidden to disclose, copy, distribute, or take any other action against me based on this profile and or... Okay, so this is just what he thinks... Well, we should we should skip down past a little bit more of this this content. If you prefer, you can copy and paste this version. If you do not publish a statement at least once, it will be tactically allowing the use of your photos as well as the information contained in your profile status updates. Do not share. I think this person meant to write tacitly. Um, ah. But I do like also the sentence before you started. Note, Twitter is now a private I don't understand, because Elon Musk 
if Elon Musk owns Twitter, he's already using your pictures, messages, information, and posts. So this is a, a genre of legal analysis that I, I've seen many times before, typically on Facebook, where it seems to spread in a, a semi-viral sort of manner. People will start posting status updates that say... Yeah, n non-consent announcements. Yeah, basically, Facebook doesn't have what, the right... What is he objecting to here? I, I don't follow, because it, the, the things he's posting on Twitter are already on Twitter. Twitter's already using them. I think, I think if, I've, if I've managed to sort of suss out exactly what's going on in this style of post in general, I think they believe that by posting this, they are preventing Twitter, Facebook, whatever company they're posting on, from selling their information to advertisers or to other okay. entities outside well, of the platform itself. If Twitter were to construe this literally, making allowance for some of the, the defects in grammar and... Spelling. Tense yep. <laughs> spelling and punctuation. But if they were to construe it literally, making allowance for those things, they couldn't let anybody else see this post because... Yep. When they when they amalgamate different Twitter comments, they're doing it based on an algorithm which makes use of the of that material that he mentions. Yep. Yeah. So you know, in in a very real sense, it, it's like the the old horror cliche. You know, the call is coming from inside the house. Your post is already on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's too late. Uh, th this is this is actually you know this is exactly the right way to protect your information rights you know this is just a little <laughs> trick that a lot of people don't know about it, it so. reminds me a little bit of the sovereign citizen movement let's not get into that <laughs> <laughs> so these are that, that could be a topic on its own yeah it could but basically all right so i'll just say for those of you who know about that to me this is the sovereign citizen of twitter now just to be clear there are rights that you can assert simply in giving notice to somebody. Yes. Please consult an attorney before <laughs> just concluding that you're validly doing that. Yeah. Because like, just no, just don't. <laughs> if, if you think this is actually protecting you, that's not right. Like, it's, you're better off not posting this and just controlling the things that you put on Twitter so that you're not putting things on Twitter that you don't want getting disclosed to third parties. Actually, yep. that, that's a good takeaway from here. Mm -hmm. If you're using any kind of social media, you really ought to read the privacy terms for that social media, but they're going to be egregious. They're going to be something that you would never agree to if you didn't, you know, if you thought that they would do anything you didn't like with the information. So really, you just got to be careful about the kind of things you post online. Yep. No, if, if you put anything on the decentralized, largely anonymous communication network that can be accessed almost anywhere in the world by almost anyone in the world, you should probably assume people you don't want to see it are going to see it. Maybe that judge I was talking about earlier assumed that my client had put her social security number on Twitter. <laughs> I hope not. Um, <laughs> maybe she did. Maybe in a, a misguided effort like this, to sort of itemize all the information she didn't want to be shared. Um, yeah, because this, like, the, the profile says Smolyoshino. Like, that's not that person's name. No. So even if Twitter were to respect this, which they never would, how would they even associate it with a person? That's a good point. Yeah, they'd, you know, say this person's real name is, I don't know, Kevin Johnson. Because they, they couldn't... You know. They couldn't go log into your profile and check what your real name was, check what credit card you had associated with it, because they're trying to respect this notice that you put out, and you told them not to do that. Yep. Although I will note on a, on a technical level, for most applications of Twitter, you don't need to give them credit card information. 
I, I don't. It, it's just some kind of identifying information in your Twitter account, I'm sure. Whether it's a cell phone confirmation code. Yeah, or, yeah, that's more likely. But anyway, yeah. M- most of these, most of the social media sites will go out of their way to get you to personally identify yourself. Yep, don't do it. I don't recommend don't do doing it. that. Off the grid. It's, I get that it's kind of move to Montana. I get that it's difficult to avoid in the modern world. I don't recommend moving to Montana either. <laughs> I think I think everyone. I, I recommend intentionality about yeah. what information you disclose where, and it's. Sort of the general advice when it comes to any kind of online privacy or security is that trusted is preferable to secure. Yeah. Only give information to people or parties that you trust and you'll be good. Yeah. And uh, if I have anything to say about this, any advice to give, only use the internet to access our content and don't do anything else. With yes. It. Yeah. That That's actually probably the very best way to avoid <laughs> getting hacked by Russians. Yeah. All right. I think that will that will do it for this week. So uh, we have to, you know, we're we're still feeling our way through this whole podcasting thing. So if if you didn't like it, it's because you didn't send us suggestions last that's, week. That's that's a fair point. Yeah, you really have only yourself to blame. But, yeah, it's not our fault. Uh, but thank you for listening. <laughs> we disclaim all liability. Thank you for listening, and uh, let's let's I guess give our little outro spiel here. This has been a production of the Lex Rex Institute, where we strive to ensure that America is governed by its law and by its law alone. Thanks for listening, and please visit us online at lexrex.org. That's l-e-x-r-e-x.org for more information about us. And to play us out, please enjoy the music of Richard Nixon's Piano Concerto. Thank you.